I think that anybody that's doing a commercial about or aimed at old people should always have somebody older than 65 as a consultant because those 40 and unders, they don't know. None of us do. Not one of us knows what it's like to be old until we get there. Hey, everyone. This is the AgeWise podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. When we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. What is it really like to get old? That's a question Ronnie Bennett has found, in her words, fascinating and even mysterious for at least 20 years, and it led her to create a blog titled Time Goes By, subtitle, What It's Like to Really Get Old. The Washington Post calls Time Goes By, quote, the quintessential senior blog. AARP refers to Ronnie as, quote, the dean of older bloggers, and her content has been called intelligent, passionate, and humanistic. Ronnie Bennett is a longtime journalist, a former radio producer, and she worked for over 25 years as a writer and producer in network television in New York City. She joins us today from Lake Oswego, Oregon. Ronnie Bennett, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. It is truly an honor to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So let's set this up for listeners. Tell us a little bit about first how you ended up, we'll start from the end and go backwards a little bit, how you ended up in Oregon, because as I understand it, you've lived there since 2010. Where are you from originally? And tell us about your life in New York pre-Oregon. Well, I was born here in Oregon, in Portland, oh. lived here till I was 15. Okay. Uh, when I moved to California with my mother, I moved back here in 2010. Well, I'd had to leave New York uh, in 2006, I think it was. When, you know, speaking of ageism and getting old, I couldn't get a job mm -hmm. and I couldn't afford to stay in New York without one. So I spent, I went to Maine for a while and that didn't suit me so much. And I really wanted to be in New York and I ended up here just because I wanted to be near a coast and I don't like Boston and I don't like Seattle. So I ended up back here because it's close enough to the coast and I would much rather be in New York. I was there yeah. for 40 years uh -huh. and that's my real home, my spiritual home. And it should be my physical home, but I just can't afford it anymore, right. and which is true of many people. So you worked in network television. I want listeners to really understand the incredible work you've done. You worked on the Dick Cavett show. You worked on local New York City morning shows. You worked on Barbara Walters specials and 2020, to name just just a few. Then in 1996, you became the managing editor of the first CBS News website, cbsnews.com, which you referred to on your website as a gas, which I love. Then you worked at a bunch of other websites. <laughs> and you write about how in 2004, you and many of your colleagues were laid off. And it was then that you faced what you referred to as a wall of discrimination and your forced retirement, which really pissed you off. And I don't blame you. Tell us about that wall of discrimination and the forced retirement, if you can, and the consequences of that, which you alluded to a little bit earlier. Um, I was working at the time at the website for a business research company, and they laid off a whole bunch of us, 10 or 12 of us at one point. 
And all of them, of course, were younger. If you work on a website and you're over 50, everybody is younger than you are. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and the, my younger colleagues, you know, we stayed in touch after we were laid off. My younger colleagues were getting work in 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks, which is a you know, normal length of time. I, in a year, got only two interviews. And I'll describe one of them that on the phone in the afternoon before I met with them, we talked about my background and what I had done and blah, blah, blah. They were all excited. Could I come in to meet some of the, a couple of other people the next morning at 10 o'clock? We were speaking at about four in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I said yes. So I'm sitting in the waiting room and time is going by. I think we were maybe it was 10 o'clock we were going to meet and it's getting past 10 and it's getting to 10, 15, 10, 20. Then a door into the offices opened a little bit and two faces looked out and looked at there were only two or three of us sitting in the waiting room and the door closed. And then one of them came out and took me aside and apologized and said he was very sorry. Someone had forgotten to call me, but the job had been filled since we had spoken on the phone the afternoon before. Well, that's just not true at 4 o'clock in the (laughs) afternoon. And everybody there, you know, was like 25, 26, 28, 30 years old. And that was true at pretty much most of the website offices that ever I was anywhere near, Mm -hmm. which is fine. I mean, it it worked wonderfully at cbsnews.com and the other places that I had worked that they knew the technology, they knew how to do graphic design online and that sort of thing. I knew the news, I knew how to write, I knew how to make effective stories, and we were all learning how to build the web together. Mm -hmm. Remember, this was the mid-90s. Right when we first started. Mm-hmm. It was very, very exciting. Nobody knew how to do websites, so we mm. were inventing it. The only other n- news site at that time that was being built and was online was CNN. There were no other. So it was a great time, and it, I was sorry to leave. I was 63 or 4 at the time. I had never thought about retiring. It didn't cross my mind. Mm-hmm. And I was working in this wonderful new industry, having a terrific time, contributing a lot, And it broke my heart. It really broke my heart, not to mention how angry it made me. You were doing a lot of research into the issue of aging even before you started the blog and while you were still at CBS. Is that right? Yeah, the story is, and and it really happened this way. CBS wasn't sure that in 1995 or six that they were truly committed to the Internet. Uh (laughs) So they put us all in a big old projection room where they used to run film and there's always a dais in the back of the chairs where the executives sit so they put me as managing editor and the head of graphics and the head of technology and so on up there and then the whole rest of the room were just people working so I looked up one day I needed to talk to one of the writers and I looked up trying to find her and I was in my mid-50s at the time and I looked around, and I, my first thought was, my God, I am the oldest person in this room. Not by a few years, by decades. <laughs> Every one of these people could be my kid. <laughs> and I was shocked. I mean, mm-hmm. I had gone from, you know, you went through it, you know, working in radio and television, mm-hmm. and now the brand new internet. And I'd had a wonderful career, and I hadn't thought that I was getting old. Mm-hmm. It didn't cross my mind. So that night I looked in the mirror and I said, yeah, you know, nobody's going to take you for 25 anymore. And I couldn't get that out of my head that I didn't know what getting old was about. I didn't know a lot of old people. I don't have a large family with old people in it. And I had no idea what was ahead of me. 
So I started spending for the next few years all my spare time that I wasn't working researching aging, whether it was academic studies, stories in magazines, books, newspapers, every single thing was negative. They didn't state it this way, but what every one of them meant was shoot yourself before you get to be 60. And I just couldn't believe that. <laughs> 60 was young. Even I thought 60 was young, and young people think 40 is old. Uh-huh. <laughs> So I just amassed this huge amount of material, and I had left CBS by several years, and there was this new thing that was coming along I was keeping my eye on in the technology press called weblogs, blogs, and mostly the first one that was invented was for people in Silicon Valley to exchange information with one another. But then it opened up to the public, and I thought that this would be, I had boxes, by the way, boxes and boxes full of information and notes and books and reports. It was just a mess. And I thought I could use this. I don't need to publish necessarily, but I could use this to organize what I've learned about aging and make sense of it. So I did. I started doing that. And what happened is I forgot to turn the off. There was an off place where you didn't have to publish. I didn't even think about it. It was being published. And about two weeks later, I found out 30 people were reading this. Thing. This was the early days of blogging. for yeah. me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, yes, in, in like about 2003 or something like that. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it kind of grew out of that quite organically. Yeah, sounds like it. So what were your expectations of the blog in terms of its success? And have you been surprised by that? You know, in the beginning, I didn't have that. I was gratified that a few other people in the world were interested in aging because most people run when you mention getting old. Oh, right. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. So I was gratified that there were a few people out there who actually were interested in this stuff. And I didn't have any expectations. There weren't any ranking services yet. It wasn't very widespread. Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking of going out and making a success. I mean, a lot of people in recent years have started blogs and gone on to much bigger things. That wasn't my point. I was still had these boxes of stuff mm -hmm. I was trying to organize. <laughs> and it grew from that. The readership was growing enough, and then some people interviewed me, and so more people were joining the readership part of the, mm -hmm. the, reading the blog. And it, I then had to invent it because nobody is saying good things about aging, and nobody is saying that ageism is a bad thing. Those are the two forces behind what I was thinking. So then I just started, I'd been a TV producer most of my life. So how do I turn this new medium into something interesting that just isn't copy of a newspaper? So I spent a lot of time developing that too. It shouldn't just be a newspaper slapped up on a screen. It should be more than that or different from that, if not more. Well, I love the physical layout of it. I mean, especially, of course, the header where you literally age in front of the viewer. You have these a series of pictures across the screen. <laughs> That's one of the best ideas I ever had in my whole it's life. It's fabulous. You know? It's I really fabulous. Too. And the font is large, so it's reader friendly. It's just an acknowledgement of the basic reality that after age 40, most of us need reading glasses. And it's written mostly by people who are experiencing the stage of their lives firsthand, right? It's written by me. Okay. I'm the only writer. Oh, okay. I thought there was, there was also uh, Except a... on, on Sundays is the music column, right. which is written by a friend of our of my age, anyway. Which in, is um, how old? Australia. I'm 76. You're 76. Okay. He's a few years younger than me, but not much. Okay. And yeah. there, there was a person who wrote a gay and gray column, and she went off to start her own blog. And Bill Thomas, before he became as well known as he is, did a column for me for about a year. 
But that's almost more work than my doing it myself. Why is that? Well, I mean, it's emails back and forth. Yeah, endlessly yeah, yeah. And I fixing see. This. It's just, I, I'm me. I do everything from design to writing to editing, everything. So, you know, I would like some time away from the computer now and then, too. What do you think about how misconceptions about aging affect self-image? And what do you think are some of the most um, prevalent misconceptions about older adults? Well, first of all, that we're all sick, that we all forget everything we ever learned in our whole life, that we are slow, that we are incompetent that we're a drain on resources, and we have no good use at all in the society. People who really dislike Paul Ryan, the House Speaker, <laughs> they call him a granny killer because he's always trying to kill Social Security and Medicare. Uh-huh. I've got a feeling that anybody under the age of 55 or so would go along with him. The society, we are set up in such a way that old people are just ignored, shoved to the side. We are useless. One of the things that bothers me the most is that the media holds up the few old people, you know, the 82-year-old who climbed Mount Everest, which, by the way, you know, they've made climbing Mount Everest easy for anybody these days, (laughs) or the guy who goes, the 75-year-old who goes, oh, former President Bush, who went skydiving with a person holding him, of course. They are held up as the epitome of old people, that we are all supposed to be like that. I remember there was one, I kept seeing stories for the... There was a whole week that every place in the online did the story about some woman who went bungee jumping. This was about 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, you get old, you're going to not be able to do some things that you used to do. Just like what nobody pays attention to is that when you're very, very young, there are a whole lot of things you can't do. Yeah, either, but that good doesn't point. make young kids bad, yeah. but it makes old people bad. Yeah, it's an interesting and point. It's just always been that way. And some people refer to ageism as the last prejudice. I would put it second to last. I think fat is the last prejudice. But, <laughs> it's, you know, they vie with each other for being the, the last one that everybody ignores. Yeah, what um, you were saying before about putting older people up on a pedestal who are skydivers and such. Yeah, there's that end. And then there's the other end where we think about older folks as stooped over, frail people using walkers. And so it's one extreme or the other. Right. It's like there's nothing in between. I wondered right. uh, if you saw that E-Trade ad during the Super Bowl that involved elderly lifeguards. Well, people keep asking me about well, People you... keep asking me about that. I looked at it afterwards because I, I just don't watch sports. So I looked at it afterwards after it was mentioned to me. I just thought it was a badly done commercial. I think that there's a place to be really funny about old people. Remind me to come back to comedy and old people. I think there's a place for it, but there are very few people over the age of 40 at ad agencies that create commercials. And they haven't the first idea about what being old is really like and what is funny about being old. My readers who leave lots of comments, we laugh a lot about things that go wrong when you're old. There's nothing else Uh to do but laugh about it and get on with the next thing. Uh (laughs) And there's some very funny things that could be done. I think that anybody that's doing a commercial about or aimed at old people should always have somebody older than 65 as a consultant because those 40 and unders, they don't know. None of us do. Not one of us knows what it's like to be old until we get there. And so you end up with commercials like E-Trade. It's not even that they're badly intentioned. They just don't know what they're talking about. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like what you said about it just not being a great commercial. And that's, of course, from the mouth of somebody who's worked in media for so long that you, that's your first impression. It was well executed technically because mm-hmm. it's hard not to do today in, in any kind of video. Right. They make it very right. easy to look polished and professional. 
but it just was ill-conceived, I think, and uh-huh. not very good. What I wanted to mention about comedy is, you know, our current president has been a boon for all comedians. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just there's just so much material to work with. And I can't stay awake that late at night, but I record three or four of the late-night comedy shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert, two or three others I change from time to time. And then I watch them the next day. Because if you wait any longer, they're old, you know. Because uh-huh. I mean, the there's so much new material, too, all the time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. And what's so funny is that it is a bastion, late-night comedy is a bastion of ages. And every single night, with rare exceptions, every one of those guys in their opening monologue will do a throwaway joke about how awful being old is. Sometimes it's self-denigrating. They might say, well, if you're you know, one year as old as I am. Right. Or a classic, if not lie about old people, misunderstanding about old people uh-huh. that everybody accepts. That uh-huh. What you mentioned, that everybody uses the cane and walks stooped over and that sort of thing. Every single night, every single one of those comedians. And it really irritates me because the media, whether it's commercials or jokes, everything else, they set the tone for the entire country media is our life these days in all the forms that it comes at us and it's a barrage constantly of how awful it is to be old yeah and the late night comedians are some of the worst offenders that's and such I like a good them. point they're so funny i mean it's such a good point i mean i some of those jokes even bother me i feel like you know come on guys you can do better than that that's just such a failure of the imagination that's such an easy cheap laugh you know you can do better than that. You're smarter is, than that. It, absolutely. You know? And they prove it. I mean, they and their writers prove every night how really clever and funny and smart they can be. Oh, for sure. Except on that subject. <laughs> and it's not It's not <laughs> like I'm really taking irritating. umbrage because I'm reaching that age, that demographic. I'm, I'm, I'm past it now. I mean, you know, once you hit 50. I'm fine with my age. I don't have a problem with it. But it's like, folks, you should be concerned about that at any age. Because guess what? It's going to happen to you, too. And it doesn't need to be framed that way. Or at least if you're going to frame it that way, show a counter. I think one of the things that the media and people in general don't get, because they think of us all as sickly and unable to do things, is that more than 80% of old people make it to the grave living on their own. They are not in care facilities. And I don't think the world knows that. (laughs) And maybe people have a house cleaner who comes in. Or maybe they use Meals on Wheels or one of those new food cooking delivery services. Uh, Maybe they have a relative or a friend who comes in a couple of times a week to help out with this or that. Mm -hmm. But they're mainly living on their own. And that's most of us. I mean, that's a huge percentage. And most of us do make it to the grave on our own. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that sort of thing is understood at all. So I just keep banging away at that kind of stuff on my blog. (laughs) I think I'm mostly (laughs) preaching to the choir. (laughs) Uh Well, it's a choir that appreciates the melody. Um, You are living alone now, and do you have kids? No, I have no children. Okay. And I have have no family left. Hmm. I would like to talk about your diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. You were diagnosed in June of last year, June of 2017? Yes, June 1st, and I had the surgery on the 20th. 
And I saw the video that you have on your website with your ex-husband, Alex. It was really very moving. Mm -hmm. You talked about how only 10% of patients can even have the operation. And so far, it has proven to be successful. And your most recent, your most recent CAT scan was cancer-free, yet the uncertainty yeah. lingers. It's because it, cancer can always recur. And it commonly reoccurs with pancreatic cancer in the liver or the lungs. And so, I mean, this is just recent. It's only two weeks ago, maybe three, that they told me that the CAT scan was cancer-free as far as they can see, you know, and it's always, I never say outright, you're cured. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in, in terms of pancreatic mm. cancer, they wouldn't use that word until you've been cancer-free for five years. Well, mm -hmm. I'm 76. I could just as easily die of something else between now and five mm -hmm. years from now. So, uh -huh. you know, I'm not too concerned about that. But yeah, I've been lucky through this whole thing that I was eligible for the surgery. As you said, only 10% of people are, and that's because pancreatic cancer is so hard to diagnose. So that by the time it is diagnosed for many people, for most people, it's beyond the point where they can do the surgery and remove. You can't take out a whole pancreas because otherwise you can't live. So, you know, there's a tumor on my pancreas and they could take out that part of it. And that came back very well. They called it clean at the edges, which meant that they didn't think that the cancer had gone beyond the pancreas mm -hmm. as much as they can be certain. And by the way, it's a terrible surgery. <laughs> they cut you open all the way down the front. Oh, wow. And they take things out. They take out the gallbladder. They take out the duodenum. They take out the piece of your stomach. They take out wow. that piece of pancreas. <laughs> I mean, you end up with a lot less in there than before. And then they have to reconnect all the hoses in different ways. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it's a really long and arduous recovery. Not so, It's not about cancer at that point. It's kind of mechanical of your body getting well again. Mm -hmm. And so when he finished describing it to me, when he told me about it first, it just sounded so awful. I said, what if I just skip that part? Can we just not do that part? This was in June. He said, you'll be dead by the end of the year. Oh, wow. How frightening. Well, that focuses your attention real well. So I did it. And yes, it was exactly what he said. It was an awful, awful recovery that took forever. It's only the last month or two that I feel like I'm completely well from just surgery. Forget cancer. So I feel terribly lucky. I couldn't finish the chemotherapy because it was playing havoc with my red blood cell count mm -hmm. and I became anemic too so we stopped that and didn't finish it but apparently that and the surgery did well and so I'm very happy yeah so what's your regimen in terms of screenings how often do you have to get them well right now I do blood tests every week because we have to keep track of several read blood readings in terms of the anemia and the red blood cell count and then I go twice a year for CT scans and I go more often than that, about four or five times a year for just a regular checkup with the doctor. Uh-huh. And Ronnie, what sort of support do you have? How have you gotten through this? I have friends. Good. I have friends who are there. I have neighbors who have become friends. They were amazing. And I was in the hospital for 11 days following the surgery. Mm. And there wasn't much I could do when I came home. And they were, one in particular, next door neighbors, came every day to feed the cat and clean the litter box and to go shopping for me. I, God, I learned a lot about frozen meals uh -huh. because I couldn't do much <laughs> cooking beyond shoving something in the microwave. You know, somebody needs to take over that industry and do better. <laughs> it's really <laughs> awful. <food. laughs> and, but they were just amazing. 
friends came by, friends called all the time. As I got better and better, they would take me shopping and get me home, and they understood when I wore out quickly. And they were just there through every step of the way. And I made the decision to write about it on the blog because oh, a lot of reasons. Um, one, there were going to be a lot of empty spots if I didn't explain why I wasn't there some days when I was too tired to write. And the support from the readership was also amazing. I mean, partway through, I started to think, what do people going through this when you don't have family like me that don't have all these wonderful readers who leave these fabulous comments? A lot of them told me about their bouts with cancer and their recoveries or friends or relatives who didn't recover and how they got through it. And apparently it was important to them to feel that they weren't alone, whether it was their own disease or that of a friend or relative, to read my experience. But I, it hadn't occurred to me up front that it would be useful to readers, and it apparently was. So I want to talk just briefly about the Frank Bruni op-ed piece because you had a really strong reaction to it in your piece today. For people who don't know, Frank Bruni of the New York Times wrote a piece called Am I Going Blind? He experienced what he writes in the article as a stroke of the eye. I won't go into the details of the piece, but Bruni wrote, I've learned that the best response to weakness is strength. Prove to yourself what you can still accomplish. So how have you adapted and what has this taught you about what you can still accomplish. You know, there was something else in that piece I want to combine with what you have just said. And he refers to a guy also in this named Joe Lovett, a filmmaker, uh, who, by the way, 30 years ago or more, I worked with briefly at ABC News. (laughs) We're not friends. I haven't seen him since. Mm -hmm. But he told Frank, you cannot spend your life preparing for future losses. And then Frank adds, it disrespects the blessings of the here and now. Besides, everyone lives in a state of uncertainty. And that hit me really, really hard. One of the things I discovered after they told me that I'm cancer-free, I wasn't celebrating. I mean, I would have expected to be jumping up and down and dancing and singing and all of that. And I wasn't. It wasn't that I wasn't happy, but right. I wasn't, it wasn't manifesting itself in the joy that I would have thought I should have. And I realized that I had come to think of myself as a sick person in the eight months mm-hmm. that I'd been going through this. Mm-hmm. And as of that day that the surgeon told me that I was cancer-free, I had to think about this hard. Why, why wasn't I calling everybody I know and said, come on over, let's all drink wine and get drunk and dance and uh-huh. stuff? I didn't want to do any of that. And this feeling of being, over the next few days, the feeling of being a sick person was lifting. And that's the thing about you cannot spend your life preparing for future losses. I hadn't even realized that I had started to think of myself as a sick person until it started to go away. So so that particular quote from Joe Lovett and Frank Bruni perfectly described what I think this needs to be. And I think we, too, that other part, we all, all our lives we live in a state of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. When we're very young, of course, we think we're immortal. And by the way, I thought I was the one immortal. You might die, but not me. And then as we get older or things happen to us, you begin to realize that, oh, it's not so perfect. This is that things can go wrong. But you don't dwell on them when you're younger, and I don't think you should when you're older. Often, a lot of the people who comment on my blog, especially during this period of going through this cancer, of you just have to wake up and live for every morning. That, oh, I woke up again today. What are we going to do today? And I don't think that's very different 
if you're as lucky as I've been my entire life and never had anything serious wrong with me before, is that you just think it's always going to be that way. You can understand that it might not be, but you don't have to dwell on it. And you yeah. don't even have to dwell on it after you've had cancer or any other terrible disease. And these things need to be said out loud because then they become more real when you say them out yeah. loud, whether you're talking about, you know, in print or you and me talking. I just think Joe's quote, you cannot spend your life preparing for future losses. And that's what I had been doing. And I thought I was doing the right thing. I was preparing to die until they told me I was cancer free. Wow. And I was doing it in some physical ways. I was not getting very far with it, but I was trying to clean the detritus out of the house. <laughs> Downsizing. And kind of get rid of a whole lot of junk. <laughs> right. uh, I wasn't getting very far with uh -huh. it. But that was the part of Frank Bruni's column that hit me so hard that, you know, you just hear yourself inside, you say, yes, that mm -hmm. is how I will live now. And, and that I had already started doing so, but hadn't put it in, into words the way he did. Uh -huh. so it, was, it was a strong column for me. I really enjoyed that column. One of my favorite quotes from that article is he says, I'm bumping up against my limits. The trick is figuring out when to focus on them and when to look away, which is kind of what you were just talking about. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Same thing. I, I agree with that so much. And you do. I mean, that's one of the things by the, go back to growing old is one of the things is even without getting sick are limitations that come along. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got some fluorescent, you know, those long tube fluorescent bulbs mm -hmm. burnt out in my kitchen and they're kind of hidden on top of the cupboards. You mm -hmm. know? And so I got the ladder out last evening and I because I bought the new ones. I haven't been on a ladder in more than a year. Do I really want to do this? <laughs> and I decided I didn't want to do it at 6 o'clock at night when I was tired. So when you and I are done, <laughs> I'm going to try it this morning and see what happens. Okay. <laughs> um, but that may be a limitation, you know. I'll yeah. have to be very careful about this. Uh-huh. Please do. So what's your writing schedule like now? <laughs> <laughs> I know that you used to write every day. So what's it like now? Um, well, I don't publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And Peter takes care of Sundays with the music column for me. So I have to turn out four things a week. That's a lot. And it's, it's a full-time job. Yeah. I mean, I read and make notes and study and talk to people a lot, lot, lot more than I spend writing. But it's a full day. It's, I treat it as my same thing as when I was working on the Internet or producing television shows. I get up in the morning. I have breakfast. I play with the cat. I sit down. And what do I have to do today? Is there, you know, I need to write a column today. Do I need to do some homework? Oh, there's that book I haven't finished. And you find inspiration in the oddest places. So it's pretty much, it's most of the time. It's every day that I'm not actually putting fingers to keyboard, but I'm doing the homework necessary, which, of course, takes 10 times as much time. Mm -hmm. And the blog is financially sustained. Did you raise some funds? Three years ago, this is the third year, I started doing a donation drive. Oh, there that's are some right. substantial expenses if you're on a low income to running a blog. I, I pay for the platform, a bunch of subscriptions that I enjoy, but I wouldn't do if I didn't have a blog to run. And so I started doing that, and I'm, the readers are incredibly generous. I don't take advertising on purpose. I find it so annoying everywhere on the web. I mean, you're right in the middle of reading an article, and this is just about everything from the New York Times to some crappy little site about cats. 
is that you're sitting there, you're halfway through the third paragraph, and something pops up over the whole screen. And don't tell me there are pop-up blockers. No, they're not, depending on what else you want to do with your computer. And so a long, long time, in the very beginning, I didn't care. I wasn't looking for a profit-making enterprise here. It was just organizing material. But advertising is so awful that I just wanted a quiet place on the web. I don't need to make money from it. I have a lot less income than when I worked, but I'm fine. Everything gets paid, and we can have a nice, quiet little place on the Internet where people who are interested can come here and talk about growing old. Mm-hmm. And it's much nicer that way, and I wouldn't want advertising all over the place. When we're younger, the question, why am I here, is sort of more connected to what you're called to do in terms of a vocation. Like, what are my talents? What do I value? But as we age, we sort of come to the question, why am I here, from a really different place. I think we still want our lives to have meaning. We want to be useful, but we don't feel like we need to sort of stand out and make our mark, build a career. But in that context, what is your response to the question, why am I here? One of the best things about getting old, and there are many good things about getting old, way up there in the top three or four or five is you don't have to answer those questions anymore, and it's okay. Nobody knows the answer to that question. (laughs) (laughs) What a great answer. (laughs) And I don't have to answer it. I don't have to answer it anymore. Yeah, what you said about being young, oh, yeah, I remember once I was a very unattractive young girl. At least I thought I was. And I remember when I was, you know, my girlfriends at school were starting to date and nobody was asking me to the prom that that's okay. I'm really smart and I can go out and I will find something to do that will change the world. And that's better than having a date for the prom. I had that exact (laughs) (laughs) and I didn't do anything that's saving the world. So I don't have to worry about that. Things kind of peel away as you get older that over and over again, usually something as silly as not having a date for the prom, I realize, you know, every now and then that I don't have to do that anymore. Or or more is, why did I ever think that was important? There was a time in my life, a long time in my life, that I wouldn't go to the corner bodega in New York for a quart of milk without putting my makeup on. What? (laughs) Did I think I was going to meet the love of my life at the bodega? (laughs) I... (laughs) <laughs> and that he cared whether I had makeup on or not. <laughs> you know? And there are dozens of things like that. I can relate to that. <laughs> Having lived in New York and L.A., two very superficial, in their own ways, sort of cities. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so silly. Tell us about your upcoming engagements. Or any last thoughts that you have, things that we didn't talk about that maybe you wanted to leave with listeners? <laughs> I want to say that people need to think upon this that there is nothing wrong with getting old and that everything that is societally bad about growing old, whether not being able to get hired anymore or being ignored in conversations or being called honey or sweetie or, gee, you don't look that old by people who don't even know you, find a way to politely say don't do that to people and keep in mind that there's nothing wrong with being old. Everything in our culture will tell you that it is a terrible thing. It is not. And given that you don't have a way out of it anyway, you might as well find the good parts of it. And yes, there is loss. I mean, a big, big, big part of it is the friends who die and the relatives who die ahead of you. And you miss them so much. But there are new friends to be found if you want. 
And by the way, you don't want the social life that you used to have in your 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe even 50s. You want more alone time. You know, there, there's a lot of talk these days in research circles and the aging press of how many old people are so lonely, and I don't doubt there are. And anything we can do to help people we think are lonely, we should do. But more and more as you get older, you want more quiet time. And this is a good thing. Yeah. So it's not a loss of social life. It's choosing more alone time. Let me put it this way. There's no reason that being old, for however age you want to ascribe that to, everybody argues about it, is it's as different as when you were a kid compared to when you were a, an adult. You don't expect your adult years to be anything like when you were 10, 12, 13 years old. And it's going to be very different when you're old. Pay attention. See how you feel differently. You don't have to keep being what you were when you were 40, 50 years old. You know, it's funny. It's become so obvious to me that it's hard for me to even talk about why you need to do these things. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It's just obvious. And I particularly have trouble with old people who pretend that they're not old. <laughs> because not only do they hurt themselves, but they add to the belief of younger people that we are useless. And they are pathetic. I don't think you need to be proud of being old. I mean, you got there because, well, you lived that long. You, you know? endured. You may or may not mm -hmm. have had anything to do with that. Or it could have been just dumb luck most of the time. But, you know, when you're a little kid, you couldn't wait for your next birthday. You couldn't wait to be grown up. Mm -hmm. There were all these things you were going to be able to do when you were grown up that your parents wouldn't let you do when you were young. And then you got there and you found out, damn, they didn't tell me it was going to be this hard. <laughs> and it's kind of, you get to let go of a lot of all those obligations and responsibilities you had as an adult. And there are all kinds of other ways to fill up that time that you, things you put off all your life. Not to mention that your inclinations change. Uh -huh. You're more inclined to want to stay home in the evening. I'd, I'd mentioned yeah. it to uh, my neighbor. But, you know, I just don't want to go out in the evenings as much as I used to. She said, yeah, my husband's the same way. He won't leave the house after 6 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay. It's okay. 40-year-olds will tell you, oh, they're so boring. They never go anywhere at night. It's not boring. There's tons of stuff to do at home. <laughs> Being old is just, it's as good as every other area of life. And yes, as I mentioned, the losses, and some of them are physical losses, and some of them are from conditions that we have to live with. It makes me crazy the amount of pills I have to take now since the pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. It drives me nuts, and I'm always counting them out and putting them in these little boxes. But it keeps <laughs> me alive. It keeps me healthy. So yeah. I plug it into my life and try to make the best of it and laugh once in a while. My difficulties as a result of the cancer are minuscule compared to some people's, but most of us are mostly healthy at our age. So you accommodate what you must and keep going. I, I mean, the alternative when it gets here, I think one of the jobs of being old, uh, and it takes a long time, you don't do this in a week or a month, it takes many, many years, is to learn acceptance of death. And it takes forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just but that's one of our jobs. But it doesn't have to take over your whole life. It's a little humming there once in a while in the background while you consider how you can make peace with that. And other than that, it's just another time of life. You know, you were a little kid and you were a teenager and you were a grown-up 
and then you started to get a little older, and now you're an old person. It comes with life. Yeah. And each one of those is interesting. When you're very young, you can't really sit back and look at yourself much. You don't have enough experience. <laughs> you don't have much to look back on. By the time on. you're up here where I am, you've got enough experience that you can apply it to what's going on in your life now. Yeah. And hopefully you've learned enough that will ease you through the difficult times of aging. I can't pretend that it's all wonderful, but I think it's a fascinating adventure, even the cancer. We've been talking with Ronnie Bennett. Her blog is titled Time Goes By, What It's Really Like to Get Old. You can explore Ronnie's website by going to timegoesby.net. We will link to that on the AgeWise website. And I'm also going to find a way to provide a link to that Frank Bruni article, the op-ed I mentioned earlier. Ronnie, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate your perspective. I love your candor. We're so in need of that in this country around so many things, but in particular around aging. Thank you for your honesty and for your courage in dealing with the whole issue. Thank you for having me. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you want to hear more conversations on a specific topic around aging or caregiving, let me know. Tweet me at Jana Panaritis or find AgeWise on Facebook. And you can always call the AgeWise podcast on our toll-free number. It's 800-529-2129. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. Thanks for listening. I'm Jenna Panaritis. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.